Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, listeners, to the second installment in our Cloverfield Retrospective series. This is Corbin. I'm Alan from over here in Chicago. And today we are discussing the sequel, 10 Cloverfield Lane, that came out eight years after the very first movie, which you can definitely go listen to. I, it, It's actually surprising with this retrospective because the first installment is really not required listening material because these movies are essentially standalone. Uh, the only thing is it might give you... It might take away a little bit of the surprise of this movie with a certain segment. No spoilers right up front for this section anyway. We will spoil it later, of course, for reviewing the movie. But anyways, it still might not even do that for you. It's a very interesting series with a lot of these standalone things that so far don't seem to connect, but possibly might. The final note has not been written on that and that's kind of what we're here to discuss today right yeah technical if you lane i remember when this movie was announced back a couple years ago and it went nuts because everyone's just like oh finally another cloverfield movie and it had been like you said eight years since we had the last one and it mm-hmm. got and then i remember the the trailer being very ambiguous and everyone's trying to pick it apart and saying these are the ten things you missed in the trailer and all that kind of stuff. It got it went pretty big when the movie was first re- announced. Yeah, I remember watching the trailer and being really mesmerized by it because it's mostly just this older song, and these people we don't know anything about them. They're all in this bunker together. Well what seemingly kind of seems like something underground considering the end of the trailer. Uh, The trailer is awesome. It's engrossing. It really doesn't tell you anything. It just shows you they seem to be having a good time together, but then at the same time, there seem to be some horrible things going on together. It's extremely confusing. I remember the first time I saw this trailer, I was super engrossed. I couldn't wait to go see it. So this trailer definitely did did its job. Yeah, yeah, it definitely did. I remember... Uh, kind of once again, we're keeping in that big theme of secrecy that I know we talked about a lot in the first Cloverfield movie that we reviewed. Uh, yeah, secrecy in this movie as well is very, very big. You don't really get too much of the trailer. Uh, you really hardly get anything. And there's one thing that I noticed that I really enjoyed about the trailer is that it begins very, very peacefully. And it's like, how is this related to Cloverfield? Uh, looking back on it. I don't think it actually had a title card when it was first released, if I'm not mistaken. But anyways, uh, and the the trailer just kind of slowly descends into essentially madness and things begin, chaos begins to ensue and all that kind of stuff. It, yeah, it's a really good trailer, really gripping. Uh, I really do enjoy it. I don't believe we saw it together opening like the opening weekend or a couple days after yeah i don't think we did i do remember watching it no we didn't because i remember watching it in the theater only one time uh and since then i just haven't returned to it um funny i actually own the blu-ray but i just haven't ever watched it up until we decided to do this review so yeah no we had never watched it together 
at least not in the theater. I did go see it with our two other friends, actually. I cannot remember why you were not able to go see it with us. Right. But I do remember seeing it, and I remember just being so engrossed by it. I took my family to go see it just two days after. So I saw it twice within the span of two days. Yeah. I mean, I do remember that. You had, you told me you need to go see it when you had first walked out of the theater. And I was like, okay, Corbin. And I remember when I first walked out, I was also pretty like, wow, that was, whew. Uh, there was one issue that I had that we'll, we'll get into a bit a bit later. But I do remember really enjoying most of everything that I saw. The movie is directed by Dan Trachtenberg. Ever heard of him? Well, I don't blame you, because this is his very first feature film. Right. Which is insanely impressive and pretty cool that J.J. Abrams picked Trachtenberg. He, like, trusted him to do this. Now, of course, we've got some other... He, he didn't write this movie. We've got some more seasoned writers. Now, this movie was actually... Um, what is the proper lingo? I don't know. Maybe you know. This was just kind of a spec type script. It was on the the blacklist or whatever, the list there. They really wanted to yeah. make these movies, but they didn't. So this didn't really start off as a Cloverfield movie. They just decided to kind of add the Cloverfield element and put it into the universe, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, yeah. So actually, the production of this was quite interesting. Yes, uh, the script was put onto this website called the Tracking Board, and it the I think it was the producers of the website. They were like, "Hey, this is a good script," so they put it on what they call a hit list, which they think, which essentially, from what I understand, is uh, scripts that they think have the best potential to make it big. And apparently, it did because Paramount goes, "Hey, I like this," and they bought the script from the Tracking Board. Uh, and they went ahead and greenlit it a few years after that. Um, so yeah, they picked it up. It, it was marketed. No, it was given the treatment of an, a micro budget. I think no more than 5 million was the original, uh, set budget that they had for it when they first bought the script. So yeah, it's quite interesting. I know that the original writers, they do have, they do have writing credits here. The original writers are... Uh, Josh Campbell and Matt Stukin, uh, they wrote the original script that was uh, pitched to the tracking board. So, yeah. And right after Paramount bought it, it was given to Bad Robot. And then Bad Robot gave it the name Valencia, which is an odd, an odd name. Like, it's, a, it's the working title name, which is which right. normal. This is normally this is what happens. They give it a title, a, a, a nickname, essentially. Every movie does get yeah. a code name usually to ship it into theaters or just to begin with, just so the word doesn't get out right away. Right. So, Corbin, I have a question. Uh, do you know why they picked the name Valencia for the working title name? Yes, I do, because they mentioned it actually in the commentary. Okay. From what I gleaned from what they're saying in the commentary, there was a scene in the movie that was eventually cut where I believe it was the the infamous dinner sequence where John Goodman's character gives about a three minute monologue talking about the Battle of Valencia. Hmm. 
I don't really know anything outside of that. I did not go look up the Battle of the Valencia. They commented more on it, but I didn't really make a note of it. Interesting. I actually didn't know that. Um, so what I found is, so Valencia is a city in Spain, right? And um, that was the number one spot, the number one uh, result that I got when I Googled Valencia is a, a city in Spain. And at first I'm just like, Okay, so what? What does that have to do with the movie? The only thing that I could find, um, I didn't look up the war, the battle of Valencia, but the only thing that I could find that really was remotely close to Cloverfield, essentially, was, um, so there was this UFO sighting. No, no, it was a UFO incident that happened, uh, around this area and it was in 1979 and a commercial flight was had to make an emergency landing in uh in valencia like in an airport there um what had happened was they were just flying along i forget where they were going but they were flying along and then these red lights show up in front of them and so the pilot dips the plane and then the lights kind of follow it and so they scheduled they said to that okay we have to land because they were breaking uh emergency uh, maneuvers and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so they had, they forced themselves to land in for safety seat uh, for safety's sake. And that just happened to be in Valencia. So that's really the only thing I could find that maybe is what the movie's based on. I don't know. It's kind of really ambiguous. Once again, going back to that big theme of secrecy. Well, I gotta say, I'm a little disappointed that Trachtenberg has really not done anything since this movie. I know it's only been about two years, but he has directed one episode of Black Mirror. So for you Black Mirror fans, if you've watched the episode The Playlist, then you know Dan Trachtenberg has brought his touch to that. It He is rumored to be writing the Portal movie. That's just a rumor. I can't verify that. The movie was just announced anyway, but I really hope he does a little more because he's just kind of been laying low on the scene yeah yeah the only thing that i had seen from him was a short film called portal no escape and i watched it i didn't even know that it was him i think it was before uh cloverfield uh tin cloverfield land had even come out and i had seen it and i remember being i was like oh, that's pretty cool because i was back then i was a big fan of portal uh, i still am but yeah that was the only thing up until this that i had really seen from from Trachtenberg. The movie stars Mary Elizabeth Winstead. I believe that's how you pronounce her last name. Yeah. Do you remember her? I remember yes. her. Yes. We have reviewed her already in our review of Scott Pilgrim versus the World. It's true. Yeah. She plays a totally different character. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but she is a very versatile actress and just very pretty, I might add. Yeah. John Gallagher Jr., uh, John Goodman, the veteran actor, and... Bradley Cooper? Are you serious? Yep. I don't believe you. Where? Um, that will have to wait a little bit. I'm going to keep you all in suspense until this movie's a guessing game. So I'm going to let you guess and see where Bradley Cooper shows up in this movie. When we get to that section, I'll let you know. Like, oh, of this course. is Bradley Cooper, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> that is shocking. I did not know that. Wow. Yep. That's interesting. It is. The movie is written by Josh Campbell, Matt Stuckman. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Yeah, I think it's Stukin. Stukin. 
Yeah. And surprise, everyone. This movie is written by Damien Chazelle, who wrote La- the massive hit La La Land. Like, mm-hmm. that was nominated for, like, 14 Academy Awards. That's – I remember when I reached the end of this movie, I saw that Damien Chazelle had a big writing credit, and I was like, no way. Yeah. And so, did a little research. He was actually scheduled to direct this movie. Then he got funding for Whiplash, and so he dropped this project and went to Whiplash, but not before he had already rewritten the script uh, or the original draft that was pitched to Paramount. So that ended up going to another guy named Dan Casey, and then Dan then uh, Dan Trachtenberg was brought on after that. So yes, he was about to direct this until Whiplash got funding. I want to mention who does the music, cinematography, and editing, because I think they do an incredible job and they should be recognized for it. Yeah. The music, the score was written and composed by Bear McCreary. The cinematography is by Jeff Cutter, and the film is edited by Stefan Grube, and I think they all work together really well. Stefan Grube was actually just a trailer editor, and he was really surprised when J.J. brought him on for this movie, and... This was just like a power team. Like everybody worked so well together. You can tell from the commentary and from the behind the scenes features that these people really knew what they were doing. They loved their craft and they just brought their full potential. And I, I love Bear McCreary's score. He, even before I heard him say it, he is definitely channeling Bernard Herman, who has done a number of Hitchcock films, such as Psycho and one of my personal favorites, Marnie. So you can really tell the Hitchcockian score. And just the cinematography is so incredible and the editing is so well done. We'll discuss that as we discuss scenes of the movie, but very well done. Right. So, okay, was it me or did you get somewhat of a shining vibe uh, with the score a little bit? Because I kind of did. I would have to... I've only seen The Shining once, so I don't know if I can fully say. I was getting much more of a psycho vibe. Gotcha. See, okay. The main theme of The Shining, you know, it goes... Bum, 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 yeah. bum, you know? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Ready that's Player the, One that's the, that. Yeah, that's The Shining uh, main theme. This one's pretty similar, but it the last note is much higher on the staff. Uh, it's not the same, but I think it maybe homages it, possibly. That's just what I got out of it. The movie contains, well, it does not contain, it holds, <laughs> but I guess that's a synonym. Huh. Different, weird. Anyway, right. 7.2 on IMDb. That's pretty good. I wish it was higher. Yeah, it seems a bit low. I mean, compared to low. all the praise that it got when it first came out. It really does, and I'm really... Okay, audiences didn't like Cloverfield, the majority, I'm speaking of majority here, Yeah, and they just barely liked this movie a little bit better. It got a B minus. Man. It it wasn't feeling much love from the audience. Now, yeah. critics are another thing, but the audience, I just, that, I find that to be very surprising, a B minus, yeah. because we get this a weird perverted movie that just came out blockers it has a b it's in this i don't know that just kind of tells me 
that when a movie is because i feel like audiences standards have been lowered so much they just want something that is really pandering and spoon feeds them whereas old films didn't do that but the new movies are just a big blue screen spectacle i think that's why when you get a tight-knit thriller that it all contains in pretty much one scene they're not going to care for it as much. I can honestly see modern day audiences not caring for Hitchcock's rope because it's pretty much all reliant upon dialogue and the camera moving around one single location the entire movie. Yeah, yeah. I think you're pretty right on that. It's interesting when we have... It's also... Okay, it really does interest me um, because the marketing for this movie, just like the original Cloverfield, shrouded in mystery, right? And that's what draws the audience in is what in the world is this, you know? And uh, so it is interesting. Were they let down is my question. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, it's something we'll get into uh, here in a sec. But it is an interesting question to bring up why this didn't this didn't necessarily sit well with the audiences it sounds like which is interesting because for all intents and purposes this is a very simple movie uh at least plot wise um and it's essentially just marketed as a straight up thriller so there's nothing there's nothing like a big film here you know it's just pretty pretty uh what you would call contained well for a budget of 15 million it still did pretty well i mean no it did great actually for a domestic gross of 72 million whoa quite a few people came to see it foreign 38 for a worldwide total of 110 million that is a major profit from a, a small budget so yes it was a big box office success yeah, yeah, definitely uh definitely made his money back. Once again, this had a pretty small budget. Actually it had more than uh originally planned, but still that is pretty good. I wouldn't say it's great because there should have been more cuz you have big names John Goodman's in this movie, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is a pretty big name as well. I feel, for all intents and purposes, I feel like this should have made a lot more money, like upwards of $300 million. Um, I'm sure it got that with more of a... I, the more I think about it, the more I'm beginning to realize that maybe this has more of a cult following or is going to develop one if it isn't already there. Kind of like the original. I think having being associated with a movie that is close to a decade old that audiences didn't really care for to begin with, I think kind of jeopardized its chances. If this would have had a different title, then I think it's possible it could have done better at the box office. But I I don't know. I'm not too worried about it because yeah. it still did fairly well. And all that matters is what I think of it. So <laughs> I hopefully it would have done better. Something tells me that it would have been worse because it's not tied to anything that you would know. Cause the, okay. The original name for this movie uh, and the original script was called the seller. Um, so I don't know. Maybe like, we really don't know. We can't, it's possible to tell. Well, it was going up against the juggernauts of Zootopia and Deadpool. Oh, yeah, that, that'd be why. So that's probably one of the big reasons why 
audience's attention were being taken away. It Zootopia was going into its second week and still beat it at the box office. It beat it by $24 million. Pretty big beat. Yeah. <laughs> and I uh, Deadpool came in third and it had already been out for... Uh, oh my gosh, Deadpool came out uh, Valentine's Day, so it had been out for almost a month and it came in third. So that's true yeah 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 and that's the currently the number one rated r number one grossing rated r movie so yeah this uh yeah yeah kind of went into some pretty big names here even marvel and disney too oh yeah technically marvel i guess I should also mention Matt Reeves, who directed the first movie, and he did go on to do... He's doing a lot of big things right now. He did produce the movie, and of course, Drew Goddard, who was also a major player with the first movie, he's also on in a producerial capacity. So, And of course, J.J. Abrams, this is a bad robot. So it's really cool to see the team is still staying together on these movies and just just really putting their effort into these smaller films, even though JJ is coming from the force awakens. He had, uh, he was already involved with the force awakens and he had already done star Trek, but in, of course, Matt Reeves was involved with the apes films at this point. So right. it's still cool to see them sticking with it. Yeah. In one small, interesting tidbit, uh, Abrams actually didn't think of them name for the movie until after he had finished Force Awakens. Mm. Uh, just a little bit of an interesting fact. Nice. Well, this movie is actually one of the rare movies that is actually shot in order. Yes, I did see that. It's shot in chronological order. Now, of course, with this kind of a movie, it makes it's pretty easy to do because it's essentially all shot in the bunker. Right, except... For the very end, which we won't discuss just yet, but I do want to say that a lot of this, like uh, Jeff Cutter, the director of photography, he really wanted to limit the blue screen and make everything in camera as much as possible. I won't give away just yet what that means, but a lot of this is real effects, and I was impressed with that. Uh, Also, I was very impressed with the warm and cold colors how much those play into certain scenes uh put on a metaphorical lens and you will notice a lot of things as to their choices with the lighting that was done in this movie and something else honestly this movie felt a lot like misery to me really i actually haven't seen misery that's right we were gonna watch it that one time i but really 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 want to Ooh, okay i think a movie night is coming on yeah uh also it's kind of funny john goodman joked he said i've never played a character so close to my own self before (laughs) that's hilarious he's like so i basically didn't have anything to do it's just me and yeah that was pretty funny that's that's hilarious well listeners we're about to give you the plot for the movie and then go ahead and start discussing it but before we do that i want to let you know we have a spoiler warning right here so if you haven't seen tin cloverfield lane and you don't want it spoiled, which I highly recommend you don't have it spoiled. So go ahead, pause the podcast right now. Go watch 10 Cloverfield Lane. It's actually available to stream for free with an Amazon Prime membership. Come back, hit play, and we'll be right here. 
On Michelle's hurried way out of town, she is knocked off the road in a horrible car accident. She wakes up in a half-painted concrete room where she is chained to the wall. Her captor, Howard, played by John Goodman, seems like an amiable fellow who's not really all there. Howard explains he rescued her from the crash, and at the same time, a chemical attack rocked major portions of the United States. Michelle is understandably skeptical and comes to realize Howard took her to his underground bunker. Also down there is the happy-go-lucky Emmett, played by John Gallagher Jr., the only problem is Emmett wanted to get into Howard's bunker because he witnessed the attack. The new unlikely family must find a way to get along and survive. One night while at dinner, Howard explodes at Michelle, which gives her the ability to steal his keys. Upon reaching the door to the outside world, a diseased woman rams the door wanting to get in. This finally confirms to Michelle Howard is right about the attack. But she can't shake that she heard a vehicle moving above the shelter and the uneasy feeling she has once she finds a bloody earring from a girl Howard claimed was his daughter, but Emmett confirms was a local high school girl that had gone missing two years ago. Michelle and Emmett set out a plan to create a makeshift hazmat suit to escape to the surface. Unfortunately, the unhinged Howard finds out and does more than explode this time. He shoots Emmett in the face. Michelle hurriedly escapes Howard and makes her way to the surface where she finds the air to actually be breathable. Believing she is safe at last, she sees a mysterious object floating through the air on the horizon. Howard's worst conspiracy theories are realized when the craft comes closer and releases an alien creature in chemical gas to murder Michelle. In a daring feat, she destroys the aliens and leaves the farm located at the address of 10 Cloverfield Lane, and she makes her way to Austin, Texas to help survivors as credits roll. So, starting off this movie, I, I remember when I was in the theater, I was almost immediately captured because there is no dialogue for, at least from uh, from Michelle... There's no dialogue from her for at least 10 minutes. Right. Most of this for the first, yeah, 10 minutes is all visual storytelling. It doesn't really give us, it doesn't really tell us much. We have to really kind of piece it together ourselves because Michelle's like grabbing things and just like throwing it into the suitcase. Like she's in a hurry. And it's clear a little bit after she leaves her apartment uh, or house uh, when she gets the call from Ben, that she's running away from some issue. We never really get closure or what exactly that issue is, but she's running away from something with her boyfriend. I always was under the impression, but I believe that has changed now that I've seen the movie a few times. I always thought that this boyfriend was abusive, but I guess I should say, well, now I'm confused. It's possible he's her fiance. I guess it's possible it's her... I, I did think she said something about, she said, my boyfriend will call the cops. Yeah. Okay, so it's more of a fiancé. Later on, she describes in the movie how it's just easier to run away from difficult situations. That's what she's always done. Right. So this makes me think that the boyfriend is not abusive, but then in the same way, it makes me think that it's possible he is. 
because she describes having an abusive father growing up and seeing someone be abusive to their child in a store. She wanted to confront the issue, but instead she just ran away. And of course, Howard is abusive as well. So keeping in line with the theme of abusive men towards younger women, especially their daughters, it seems right. very well she could be running away from an abusive relationship, but that is not confirmed in the movie. Right. Yeah. And I think you're very much right when you when the, this could potentially be a abusive relationship. Once again, we never get that answer. Uh, I think it's more just kind of left up to the audience to really imagine what that could be. Because... Um, she kind of answers Ben when he calls her, but then just doesn't say anything. Like just uh, leaves the line open and he's like telling her, um, Hey, Michelle, I need you to, you know, you can come back. You don't need to run away from this. This is so stupid. You know? And it's like, I'm sorry. All this kind of stuff. It's, it's interesting. Almost. I don't. Cause if we look at, if you look at the situation as if Ben was an abusive boyfriend, then we would, I would almost see this as being very manipulative. Um, at least of ben, on Ben's part, which does kind of play one more into uh, Goodman's character later on when he when she is captured, um, and he's also very manipulative as well. So uh, yeah, I that does you do bring up an interesting point that I actually had never thought of. Maybe this is an abusive relationship. I don't know. It never movie never really says, but I would I think it works pretty well if that were the case. Yes, this movie is. Heavily depicting a female protagonist overcoming her captors, not just physical and not just extraterrestrial, but of course also mental because she is dealing with different mental issues that she has clearly because when she confides to Emmett about that right, in their heart-to-heart -heart sequence. So this movie is definitely... I love the female protagonist. They absolutely chose the right person with Mary Elizabeth Winstead. I think she just gives a great performance where she can be vulnerable, but she's also very tough when she needs to be and right. does take care of herself because I love how it shows ultimately she is not just going to give in and take the easy path. She's going to run away, but in order to fully free herself not just to sweep things under the rug so i love that aspect of it and i gotta say i love in the beginning there is so much hitchcock being channeled this is so much of a treat for me because i am a major hitchcock fan and i should go ahead and say right now listeners later in the year we will be covering some hitchcock movies and also a couple Damien Dell movies. So we're talking about both here a little bit. We're excited to bring you those. But this is total Hitchcock. And I the silent opening is incredible. Also panning from the city to a window. That's definitely a psycho move. And actually the city is not actually a city. It's a matte painting that they just made. Really? They manipulated it a little bit with CGI to make it look alive i love yeah. this was jj abrams choice to uh show not tell there's so much visual storytelling and jj said let's just show not tell for quite a while of it and these characters choices and feelings will organically come out later on in the story instead of giving it to you up front and to answer what you said about her talking with ben 
That's actually Bradley Cooper. Oh, okay. I see it now. Basically, JJ is like, I need somebody on here. So he just texted. He's like, I just texted my friend Bradley. And I'm like, hey, I need, you know, can you just like send him a text? Can you just like record this for me? Bradley recorded it on his phone and just sent the text over to JJ. That's how it happened. (laughs) That's hilarious. Wow. That's so funny. So, yes, I think you are very, very right. Um, this opening feels very psycho, uh, with Winstead packing her things and leaving. Yes, we get the, we get, uh, opening shot of the city kind of moves back and it's behind a window and then it immediately, the dresser moves and Winstead is putting all her stuff in the suitcase, you know. Yeah, very much taking off a psycho here, uh, which we did review about a year ago, um, where she's escaping her issues, she's escaping her problems, uh, she's getting out of there. We This does come back a little bit later in a conversation with Emmett um, where they were talking and she, you know, speaking, telling the story about how she saw the little girl in the grocery store and then just kind of ran away. So, yeah, this is an interesting setup. And one thing I did notice is there's a lot of foreshadowing. There's a lot of setup and then uh, resolution because one small detail that I caught was the bottle of liquor that is on her cabinet. Oh, yes. She takes that, right? Mm-hmm. We don't see it ever again until the very end uh, when she's fighting the alien and she lights a Molotov cocktail and tosses it in the mouth. Small pieces like that are kind of riddled throughout this movie. Um, oh, yeah. Almost makes it really, really rewatchable. It definitely does. There's a number of things I missed on the first time. I did watch this with my dad. He pointed out the liquor bottle and I didn't even remember it. Upon my second viewing, I caught it right in the beginning. Because a lot of the things with the visual storytelling, you do miss a lot. Because you're just in the moment trying to think about different things. But then that's nice. That rewards rewatchability. You come back and you do pick up on a lot of stuff. And there's just so much to explore in this movie with her wall being half pink and a lot of uh, things with the lighting, even with cinematography. They Something I was really impressed with the cinematography is when there's more confrontational type scenes, uh, the characters would be in profile, kind of like facing off against each other. And then when things were more confided, they would do, the camera would just directly, not directly, of course, you you know what I mean. It's kind of off to the side, facing the character's face. Yeah. Just, they, they thought of so many really cool details and what they were able to do with warm light and the blue light just to create different atmospheres and for certain situations like the table scene that is very warm light because it's supposed to be very inviting but in the more crucial scenes that are much more thrilling there will be more of a blue light yeah you're you're very right uh i did notice this too when in this this small scene when um John Goodman's character, Howard, kind of comes into Michelle's room and changes up the light bulb and you know, pulls off the little lamp and unscrews it and puts it back in, you know, that that whole scene. That's one thing I did notice about the lighting. It just, at first was like, why is why are we seeing him replace the light bulb? And then it began to click and I was like, oh, okay. So, yeah, it's, the colors here, 
they are kind of they're really complementary for the scene. Um, but I do want to talk about the cinematography. This reminds me quite a lot of Room because for the first half of Room, they are they it all takes place in in this very small area. I think it's twenty square feet, something like that. It's very small. And pretty same here. They have a lot more space, of course, to move around. Um, but yeah, it's all very confined. There are a lot of medium shots. There are very few wide shots. Right. Um, but for the most part, it's medium or very close up. Gives you a very good sense of claustrophobia. And in a couple of scenes, they really push that. Uh, later on, when uh, Michelle's character goes up into the air vents, has to reset the, uh, I think it's the air filtration system. That's one scene that comes back later, too. Uh, very claustrophobic. Like she's like she's barely fitting through that air vent. Gives you a good sense of we're too close. Always uneasy. I do like the physical claustrophobia, but some of that seems to dispel once she gets out of captivity from the room. Which I gotta say, when we first see her chained up, like your heart just drops into the the bottom of your stomach. It is so disturbing. Like, you know, something's going to be horrible. But you come to find out that the claustrophobia is very much between her relationship with Howard. Because Howard is this... He he thinks of these two as his kids. The way he talks to them, the way he treats them. Because he says things like, get your hands off her, keep your hands to yourself... This is my room. It's off limits. You know, even though they're totally adults, they know how to behave and do things for themselves. It's very interesting how much he treats them like his kids. And that makes, that makes them like walk on eggshells. They have to defer to his authority. And there's such a claustrophobic sense between their relationship because I, I really love how the bunker is fairly spacious but at the same time they're still trapped down there yeah it's it's very interesting because uh john goodman very much plays the fatherly role in this situation almost as if he kind of forces himself into it i should take it back he does really force himself to be the father figure of these two kids um and at first it's kind of weird because uh, Michelle and Emmett kind of have a thing, and then he shuts that down real quick. But yeah, you're very right. They are essentially, they have to walk on eggshells. There are kind of just a lot of rules that they have to follow. Uh, it's, it's very, very uneasy because we don't really know why he at this moment though we don't really know why he decided to kidnap them um we find out later it is because of the attack um and and stuff like that and Emmett actually volunteered no Emmett essentially forced his way in um but it, that's okay that also brings up another interesting point because Emmett forced his way in whereas Michelle she she was kidnapped um what happened is he ran into her uh, when he was driving, as he says, as he was driving back uh, after he had heard about the attack. Um, and so then he ran into her and then uh, essentially kidnapped her and brought her back here to essentially to heal. Um, but we do maybe see him at the gas station. It doesn't really say, but 
that's probably where he got the idea is then. And then it's very clear later that she looks a lot like Megan, or as we come to believe later, Brittany. Yes, we know that Goodman's character mentions his wife took his daughter away. And he says something, at least I tried to save them. We don't really know the context of what that means, but I think Goodman is incredibly, the Goodman who plays Howard is incredibly unhinged. And the way I see it is this is his way of, he sees Michelle as his daughter, Megan, and he is going to save her at whatever costs. And I did read some of the things found in the alternate reality game that came before this movie. And it's a lot of just like emails that Howard wrote to Megan just saying, I'll come pick you up whenever you want. This is how to protect yourself. This is what to do. And she seemingly never responds. So my guess is that Howard views Michelle. He just kind of has this weird psychosis and latches onto her and tries to make her into his daughter. That's why he gives her Megan's clothes, which he also previously gave to Brittany. And I don't... There is so much mystery shrouded in that, but I, at the same time, I want to learn more. I really, really wanted to know more. But then at the same time, I feel like you don't want too much of the mystery explained or else it'll kind of ruin it. So it's good they still keep that atmosphere of mystery. And it's more so about yeah. him latching on to his daughter symbolically. Right. Yeah. And do you – okay, question time. Do you actually think that there was a wife involved in this situation at all? Or do you think that's just uh, that's just Howard kind of making up a story? Because we do find out later that Megan – Megan is actually a classmate of Emmett, and her name is actually Brittany, not Megan. And so that also kind of brings up the question, okay, well, how much of Howard's stories are actually true? Right. Howard is what we would call in literature an unreliable narrator, or I guess in this case an unreliable character, because his testimony has a lot of holes in it. So... There's something else that always has that really bugged me upon this viewing that I really want to know more about. When we see the picture of Howard and Brittany on the couch together, either someone else is taking that photo or Howard is just using a timed camera, I guess. But right, if somebody is taking that photo, that doesn't really seem in Howard's style to be cohabiting with someone Uh, that's just a mystery that we will never know it does seem more like his personality to be a loner and to him just take it but honestly i do believe there was a wife and a daughter and his daughter loved france we see in one corner of the bunker a lot of french pictures and whatnot of the eiffel tower and of course that's the Close Mary Elizabeth Winstead wears for about the second act of the movie. So yeah, I do believe there is that, but there is a daughter and a mother somewhere, but who knows how long ago that took place. This is something that I found very, very interesting. Um be is the dynamics between kidnapping and then family. Uh 
you never really would relate those two, at least necessarily speaking, because when you think kidnapping, you think uh, they always want to escape. And yes, at first that is very true for this movie, but then it kind of becomes more to the point of now we just have to live together and they begin to all kind of get along and they don't really try to escape for a, a big chunk of the movie, at least. It's something I found to be very, very interesting tying together uh, those two themes and making it work a, a family and then a kidnapper. Um, it's I found it to be very quite interesting something that you would never really see uh in a, in a movie really ever and now to be fair that theme kind of goes once again to turn back onto its head when uh i think it's be right when emmett dies is kind of when the whole thing just kind of topples over and uh michelle decides that she just wants to leave so i find that to be quite interesting and another thing i also found interesting too is howard and maybe possibly his movie is very subtle about this but maybe possibly being a sexual predator um it's not something the movie really talks about heavily but it is something that is very subtly implied that i caught up but i never really got the sense that 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 his intentions for for the most part his intentions uh, were to do anything bad to Michelle. Mm-hmm. At least not until a certain point, maybe after that. And I'll get to that in a second. No, I think Howard is this really lonely person since his family left, and he's all about protecting them. He worked on the Navy. He worked on different satellite projects that helped keep the United States safe, things like that. So I, I think he desperately wants someone to take care of he wants that love reciprocated back at him i i mean i think he's totally insane uh something that is very troubling is that howard knocked her off the road before the attack he said something about oh i saw it i had to knock you off the road to save you but that just doesn't add up because emmett's description of the attack was a blinding red flash like something you'd see in the bible well we don't get that so i guarantee you because we know howard did see her at the gas station his truck pulls up right behind right he purposely knocked her off the road because he wanted a new daughter and it's very possible michelle is probably around his daughter's age now and kind of going off of what you're saying about kidnapping and family dynamics this is a little bit kind of becomes a little bit like a Stockholm syndrome where the yes. uh, kidnapper starts to, or I'm sorry, the person who is kidnapped begins to appreciate their kidnapper and becomes totally cool with the situation. I feel like we kind of get a quasi Stockholm syndrome, but not completely because ultimately uh, M- Michelle is still very apprehensive about Howard, even though they seem to have this semi-functioning family unit. And Howard even says something about, he calls them like this little happy family, we've got to learn to get along or something like that. Yeah, the Stockholm Syndrome, yeah, big theme here uh, because Michelle eventually warms up to to Howard and and stuff like that. So yeah, Stockholm Syndrome, I do believe is a very big thing uh, here as well. 
It, it, but the one scene that I maybe caught a little subtle of uh, sexual predatorness from Howard would have been after Emmett dies and he shaves his face and then puts on some nicer clothes. Uh, that was when, and then he brings her ice cream. Uh, he says we're going to eat dessert before dinner and he, it's just so weird it's i do understand that he's maybe trying to make the situation better he is now at a point now where he's just like now it's just you and me it's a, a father and daughter relationship uh, we have those themes in here as well but i found that to be very weird uh never uh, once again never to a point where i was it was conclusive that this was what howard was but to a point where it's like okay this is just uneasy more than it was ever before yeah i I kind of never really thought of him as a pervert in all of my viewings, except for this scene that you just talked about does drop a little hint, but just to rewind a little bit, when Michelle is going to the bathroom, he stands right there in the doorway, and he explicitly right. says, I'm not some pervert, just go, and honestly, I believe him, this does seem to be kind of like some, I don't know, father-like situation where you would take maybe like your very small like toddler daughter to the restroom or something it's still incredibly uneasy and very bizarre but what does yeah make me even more uneasy is once Emmett is dead he does he says like let's have dessert before dinner and then he says we can do whatever we want now what yeah. in the world does that mean what could they not do before Emmett was around. That is a very scary line. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of where uh, it's not as subtle as it was before. Before, you really, they kind of shied away from that. They really didn't go down that road at all. Here, they kind of tap on it. Uh, Michelle kind of sticks it to him after that. Um, it doesn't take very long for her to begin her escape. But yes, the this is... For me, I found this to be almost pretty it was very much like okay maybe he is and we never really get conclusive answers uh typical of cloverfield just in general but yeah you bring up a good question what couldn't they do before Emmett was there uh luckily the movie never goes down that route um she is this is very much a women empowerment movie uh she sticks it up to him and she begins her escape all that kind of stuff so yeah it's weird but I almost feel as if it's necessary because Howard is a very broken, very broken character. We get very subtle hints throughout the movie of his past life. He was uh, once again in the military. His, as he says, his wife walked out on him, took Megan, um, stuff like that. And even the scene where he says, I'm not a pervert, he like stammers for just a brief moment when he says, I'm not some pervert. It's almost like, because this hat, well, that end happens more than once. You kind of stammers when he's talking. Um, it almost makes me feel as if, okay, well, how much can we actually trust him actually saying that? Because of just not only how uneasy he is, but how, what is he thinking on the inside? And he also seems to just switch emotions just so quick. Um, it, there are multiple times in the movie where he's, his emotions kind of just flip on a dime. It's very weird. It's clear that he's just a very broken character just in general. Uh, and that I find to be one of the more scarier elements is, and what makes this movie more intense and very definitely on the edge of psychological uh, horror is Howard's character, the engulfment of his character at least. 
I, I gotta say, I am very surprised John Goodman did not receive a, at least like a best supporting or maybe best actor nomination for this performance because this performance is seriously incredible. His, how he just pronounces his words, like you just said, the slight facial expressions that he gives, how he acts. It's one of the best performances I've ever seen. It's so amazing. I just really feel like he got snubbed by the Academy. Yeah. I definitely could see him at the very least getting a nomination for this role. Um, one thing I did pick up on is the breathing as well. That just kind of adds to the fact that he's just such an uneasy character. Now we have uh, that breathing that he has. It's kind of heavy breathing, um, almost as if he got something stuck in his throat or he's having issues. It's interesting. Yeah, he does craft this character very, very well. I can't really see anybody else playing this character except for John Goodman. So good job, I guess. That That's... Uh, very well done in my in my own opinion. Well, let's go ahead and talk about the table scene, dinner scene, whatever you yes. want to call it. This is Great one scene. of the best scenes of the movie. And just immediately, I have a very uneasy feeling and the tension just builds and builds and ratchets up so much that you know something's going to happen. And honestly, I've seen this movie a couple times. Every time Howard slams his hand down on the table, I still jump and just my heart rate increases. Yeah. Oh yeah. I am the exact same way. This is, this is one of the best scenes of the movie. Uh, if not the best, just this dinner scene, there's just so much to it. That's the best thing about it. It begins with the, just being really awkward. And then Emmett just is talking too much. And then we kind of see uh, Howard snap. And then uh, Michelle gets the idea of, okay, if I take his keys and I can get out of here, so she begins flirting with Emmett, and that makes Howard even more mad. Eventually, she gets her keys. Uh, she gets the keys off of him. But it takes basically no time at all for Howard to be like, all right, who took my keys? Um, and then that's when she hits him over the head, yeah, with the uh, pop bottle. Always a great scene. And she runs up the staircase, and he's, she, he's screaming at her, no, no. This scene goes insane places because not only... This is the first time that Michelle really stands up and uh, actually begins to have some more success in essentially outsmarting or uh, outwitting Howard and actually planning her escape. And then it's immediately uh, flipped on its head when the neighbor shows up and we realize at this point, okay, something actually happened that Howard may not be lying about this attack and all this kind of stuff. It's such an interesting and engaging scene that, yeah, it really flips the movie on its head uh, almost completely just because of how much has happened and how much they present. I kind of view Howard's motives for blowing up because it shows in some way that I don't know if I can totally decipher because I'm not a psychologist. He has some kind of jealousy and covetous attitude over Michelle I yeah. think he could also see it as these two are his children and their siblings, and it doesn't seem right for uh, Michelle to be treating Emmett in that type of a way. And it also goes to show you, I think Howard is, like I said, he is extremely covetous over Michelle. That's why he is constantly putting down Emmett. He's always mad at yeah. Emmett, and he says something along the lines of, uh, we don't appreciate... He says, I don't appreciate 
your humor while we're trying to eat, and neither does Michelle, Michelle, so shut up and let us eat in peace. Right. Clearly he's on, he, he wants Michelle to be on his side, and I think there is some kind of weird jealousy going on here, where he's uh, almost kind of like in the movie It, where the red-headed girl's father says, you're still my girl, aren't you? And he's like, you're my girl, and those other boys aren't. I kind of got a little bit of a feeling uh, from the same, yeah. except much more subtle. You have to read into the psychology of the character. Right. Yeah, it's also, I also noticed one small detail uh, with this scene as well. Uh, Howard pours Michelle's drink. Like, he pops the cap off and then pours her into her pours the the orange soda into her glass uh yes very big father or daughter's uh themes in this movie between howard and um michelle big big time i'm more on i would say more on howard's part than hers it's just yeah it's so interesting and so weird at the same time that the movie would even go down this route for a kidnapper to play this fatherly role it's yeah it's quite the interesting movie that they have that they craft this around as well. We we also know, I believe Michelle knows how to manipulate Howard because she speaks of her abusive father. So she has experience dealing with a person in this situation. That's why I think she knows what to do to push Howard's buttons. And it's kind what? of interesting because in the beginning, Emmett is really not there for her kind of like her brother was, but in the end we see Emmett take, the bullet for her just like she's like my brother was always there to take it for me when it happened and we get kind of a bit of a different scenario though because howard it's like she ran away from her abusive father and she gets abducted by an abusive father that really wants her around and she kind of can do no wrong in a way up to a certain extent but when it crosses the line of like jealousy and like violating like his like his only like the love that he can have and he sees that directed towards somebody else then he gets violent yeah a lot of psychology yeah, there is definitely some jealousy here yeah there's definitely some jealousy here maybe i wonder if there is some with emmett as well possibly uh and this does maybe come out towards the end in his last scene when he says, I wanted your gun. I wanted her to respect me as much as he respected you. Right. Uh, could be a ploy to uh, save her skin. I believe it is. But it also could be some jealousy coming out that we just that has been just very subtle throughout the runtime up to this point. Personally, I feel Michelle and Emmett's relationship is 100% platonic. I never got any romantic elements whatsoever so i believe that was i believe that was completely a ploy because he knows howard's authority so that would be the exact right. thing to make him believe the situation and send him off but i'm i'm sticking with their more of a brother sister platonic relationship yeah i the only time i ever got anything more than a platonic brother sister relationship is that is the in this dinner scene um when she kind of flirts with him a little bit other than that, yeah, I do agree. It's very platonic. They don't really go any farther uh, than that. So, yeah, it's this is such an interesting family dynamic that we have here because nobody knows anybody when the movie begins. And as we come and kind of go along and begin to really 
work together and they become a they be, do become a family and they like are essentially forced to work together uh in this situation um okay i want to get into emmett's character because i find him to be one of the more interesting ones well okay i take it back there's only really three characters in this movie but he is the one that kind of gets compare of course comparing to the other two characters he kind of gets the short end of the shaft because uh, just of how he's written. Um, that's not really a good or bad thing. It's just how it ends up being. But I, I do kind of want to get into his character a little bit because I do find him to be still very, very interesting. Something I really appreciated about Image character and uh, Michelle's character as well. But just speaking of Image character right now, I found him to be very relatable because he's talking about the feelings of running away from responsibility and i think that's something everybody can relate to and he also talks about how he lives his life within like a 40 miles or less radius and honestly i think i think a lot of people more than you would realize want that life where your responsibilities are limited you don't have to deal with going out into the scary big world. I know many a times I've been in situations where it's like, I just wish I was home right now. You know, I, I'm jealous of the people that are home right now. They don't have to be in this situation. Or if I'm watching videos of people climbing through caves, then I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I live at home when I'm not that adventurous. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways... Emmett's character, he is such this kind of simple guy. Always seems like he would try to do the right thing, but he still has flaws. Because uh, he, he like was offered that opportunity. And I like how he said, like, I was even able to outrun my bad grades because of the scholarship he was offered, but he didn't take it. And it makes sense because if he's got bad grades, why would he do any better in college? Right. Yeah, that scene between him and Michelle is one. I also one of my more favorite scenes of this movie because you really get this. You really begin to find out a lot more about these two characters. So yes, uh, going back to what you just said, uh, he he was offered a full ride to a university, um, but then he decided that he just didn't want to go because he was afraid that everybody else would do better than him. And because he was afraid of that, he essentially, I wouldn't say he ran away from responsibility, but was playing the safety card. And he's like, I don't want to take any more risks than what I've already given. And so he decides to not take the bus and uh, go, go to the university. Instead, he stays home. And as he says, I've only lived in a 40 mile radius of where I live now. And he's very much a character who is very safe. He wants he plays things very thing, plays things very close to the chest. He isn't something isn't somebody that really goes out of his way to do much of anything. Really, the only thing that we really find out about his character, other than that he knew Elizabeth and that he was going to go to university, is that he did help uh, Howard build the shelter, um, which is another interesting thing. Uh, as well, which we'll get to in a sec. But yeah, it's I find uh, Emmett to be quite the interesting character because he feels, at times, he feels the most foolish as well. He feels very much like a teenage boy still because at one point he talks about North and South Korea and he can't remember which one's the crazy one. Uh, small things like that. He, he seems to be someone who's very... M 
very easily manipulated. He also, once again, believes that it was an attack, even though we find out it was just a bright light that happened. Uh, he seems to be quite foolish. Uh, he can run really fast, and that's how he got out of his bad grades, uh, once again. But, yeah, he he ends up being this really heartwarming character towards the end because he gets he becomes the brotherly role for Michelle. This is essentially... Uh, ends up becoming really the family that Michelle never really had, one that got along for these for these thirty minutes of the movie. It's yeah, I find Emma's character to be really not only important but also impactful for Michelle's character because he takes the bullet for her just like her brother did before. It's yeah, Emma's character very interesting. Even though he is, I find to be the weakest character of the three. Uh, he is in no way not important. Well, I do really appreciate that both characters have story arcs. And we also do learn yeah. that Emmett has a sister in high school, or at least he had a couple years ago. So I can definitely see that's why he um, is the way he is with Michelle in at first, he doesn't seem very responsible. He does the teen questionnaire magazines, which seems kind of just simple and kind of kind of silly. And like you said, he doesn't really know much about the world. He just wants to live his, you know, simple rural life, which there's no problem with that at all. But I really do like yeah. how he goes from this guy that doesn't take responsibility to taking responsibility because it just shows he grows up. And the same with Michelle. In the beginning, she doesn't really know what kind of choices to make. We have no idea where she's running to. We just know she's getting out right. of Louisiana somewhere. I mean, this movie takes place in Louisiana. So she's getting out of the city. She's going to a place. We don't know where. She doesn't know where, I'm assuming, because she packs in such a hurry. But then at the end, I really love how she makes a sure choice. She takes a look at the road sign and she knows where she's going. She knows what she needs to do. So both characters have yep. a great payoff and story arc in this movie. I I would say that uh acting wise uh I I feel like Howard, we know probably the least about Howard. That doesn't make him a weak character. But honestly, I feel like we know more about Emmett than we do about Howard. We just know Howard because Howard is an unreliable narrator, whereas Emmett is not. He may not know everything, but he is at least honest or at least does things to protect others, even if it does require some form of lying to protect others. I do want to mention we do get some more foreshadowing here about halfway through the movie, maybe towards the end, where Emmett says Howard's got a crazy theory about mutant space worms. And we know for some reason that the power, there's been a major blackout on the southern seaboard. This is before the attack. And we don't know why. So there is still foreshadowing towards the end also when that helicopter flies over the bunker it wouldn't shake the house that much unless it was flying extremely low there's been helicopters that have flew over my house it does not cause that much of a shake so uh 
there are little tidbits. So when we do get to the twist at the end, it's not a complete drop storyline coming out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. There are some very subtle pieces and hints here and there that do kind of allude that, okay, maybe it really was an attack. The neighbor happened thing that we talked about earlier. Uh, yes, the helicopter that flew overhead. Or the, yeah, the helicopter that flew overhead that may or may not actually be an alien, uh, an alien spaceship. Yeah, there are subtle hints dropped here and there about what's going to happen in the ending, and maybe perhaps Howard was right. And which is I, honestly, I find even scarier because this, that just kind of is more fuel for the conspiracy theorists um, in this world and, and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, yeah, there are subtle hints. There are there is foreshadowing everywhere in this movie, um, and I did is a really good payoff. It it this is kind of writing one hundred and one. You introduce something, you build it up, and then you pay it off later. Um, so yeah, it is it is there is a lot of foreshadowing in this movie. Uh, watching it for the third time, I began to pick up on all of these all the stuff. Then I was like, okay. Because at first, when I remember when I first watched it, the ending was very jarring for me. And I was like, well, what in the world? But when I watched it again, and then I, I again after that, I began to pick up on those subtle hints. And I was like, okay, I see. This isn't some this isn't some right hook that the movie is just hitting me with. I don't want us to spend too much time on the Britney sequence, her finding the bloody earring, because I know we've discussed that quite a bit already. I just want to know your feelings and... Uh, also, so the listeners can know your feelings. What did you think the first time around when she finds the earring and then you get this twisted revelation that Howard has abducted this girl and says she's his daughter when it's not at, at all? That was a big twist and very disturbing for me. Yeah, yeah. This movie likes to go back and forth with who's right or I guess what's right in, in the whole movie, just, just in general. So when this Britney sequence came up, uh, I was like, okay, so it kind of confirmed to me that Megan, technically Megan didn't exist. It was actually a girl named Britney who was uh, a part of Emma's class. And so, yeah, it really made me question, okay, well, if that's the case, is Howard actually telling the truth at all uh, in this movie? Um and so, yeah, it it was it was quite it made the movie even more intense, which is exactly what it's meant to do. It just made it uh, something that I was that engaged me more because I was like, OK, uh, now I'm even more fascinated in Howard's character and what all he's capable of doing. So, yeah, I was very shocked when I first watched this that Megan don't know where he got the name Megan from, uh, but Brittany was her name and that she was abducted by him. It, once again, it's almost like a repeat. He once we, we did talk about this earlier. He really wants somebody, a daughter to love and to love him back and respect him. And, and we find out about that basically uh, at this scene uh, that kind of becomes something. Although maybe Megan did exist and his story of his wife leaving him and taking Megan, it do, did actually happen, but he captured Brittany to kind of replace Megan. 
the movie's kind of subtle. It doesn't exactly answer all these questions, which is kind of what it's really good at doing is bringing up a lot of stuff and saying, what about this? And, and very subtle. It doesn't always answer everything. Reading some of the content from the alternate reality game, which is definitely not necessary for this movie, but I just officially on the record, I do believe he had a wife and a daughter named Megan. He said she poisoned my wife poisoned my daughter against me and took her away. And then just reading some of the emails he sent to Megan, he was telling her that he is building this bunker, which she can come to any time to feel safe, or she can just come back home. And he's t teaching her about survival and things like that. So to me, this seems like uh, Brittany, he found Brittany and placed her in the bunker. And that's where he tried to create recreate the world with Megan to keep this girl safe and somehow Brittany got up in that uh air shaft area and tried to scratch help well she did scratch help into it with her bloody fingernail and whatnot right. and there's multiple things that could have happened to her body I I thought he had an incinerator down there where he just burned the trash it's still possible that's what it is but I'm pretty sure he he probably like dumped her body into that chemical stuff, but yeah. why would he do it? There is so many questions to this movie, but like you said, it preserves the air of mystery and doesn't get sidetracked with unnecessary side plots that would totally derail the plot of the movie and the pacing. It gives you just enough to let you know something is seriously wrong. And all we can do right now is deal with the situation that we're in uh also I, I gotta say i really like the montage sequences in these movies i think they're done fairly well yeah usually well i wouldn't say usually a lot of times montages aren't really implemented very well uh but yes they do work here uh there are two of them one is when we kind of get a passage of time um because uh this was after this hey this happened right after Michelle tries to escape, and then we have a montage not long after that. And then the other one is them constructing the makeshift hazmat suit. So yeah, they, they these both kind of work. One serves more of a passage of time. The other one serves essentially as the rising action to the climax, saying uh, this is the plan. Now that we have all these supplies, we can essentially escape now. So yeah. Yeah, I there I do like these montage sequences. I do think that they work they work really well into the movie. Uh they don't really it, it's not like we're missing information when they when these happen. I know that there are a lot of times when that is a thing. The, the other thing that I want to mention is when they were playing the I don't know what game it is. You got to like uh guess words or something. I don't play these board games very often. My girlfriend would definitely know what it is probably. I find it very interesting how fixated he is with little girls. I, I know that sounds bad, but I'm I'm not 100% positive Howard means it in a perverted way. I'm not going to take a stand on whether he is or not, because I don't feel like we have enough information to confirm. But anyways, Emmett is trying to get him to guess the movie Little Women. But Howard can right. only guess little girl, child, and princess, or little princess. That just clearly shows you he is not altogether 
mentally because Michelle is not a little girl. She clearly is an adult woman. So Howard's weird fixation comes out, and I feel like it comes out in such an organic way with this guessing. So I was extremely impressed how that was handled. And then, of course, we right. go into where uh, he's saying, I know what you're doing. I know what you're seeing. And uh, my dad was really concerned in this scene. And I was slightly concerned to begin with, but then I began to figure it out a little. And I got to say, if you've seen this movie a couple times, some of these sequences you will remember, which I think kind of lessens the rewatchability. But look for it more on a deeper level than just the physical aspects or sequential aspects in front of you. Uh, but I got to say, guessing game, great scene. Yes, another great scene. Uh, yeah, very interesting that he can't, for some reason, for some reason, tell say that uh, Michelle is a woman. It's interesting. It, I think there is some psychological issues going on there that really blocks him from being comfortable saying that word yes that really ham i would say even asks more questions as to okay well how what exactly happened in howard's past um so yeah we have that i love how they relate santa claus to howard though um he's like you said always watching he's always there he knows what they're doing at all times he can come and go as, as he pleases and at one at after a while, Emma's just like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. They're not doing anything. And then it's uh, Michelle who speaks up and says, oh, you're Santa Claus. And he goes, yeah, you're right. It's, yeah, it's it's weird how this scene serves many purposes, which a lot of scenes in this movie do. They serve more than one purpose. They're not just there just to move the plot along, but they serve more than one thing. It, this not only serves as a growing moment, growing moment for the family, but also shows that Howard has an issue with saying women. Um, he has he's related to a Santa Claus, someone who's technically considered a very good person, always giving uh, to these children. Uh, very much a childhood uh, fascination, I guess. So, and then of course we have the we know now that Howard knows that something's up. Like it's unmistakable that Howard knows that there is something going on between Emmett. And uh, Michelle, this scene serves so many purposes. This is a very well-constructed scene. I, I really do enjoy it a lot, too. Yes, and like you said, Santa Claus is associated with children because he brings gifts to the children. And he's constantly saying, you guys are ungrateful, even though I've given you all of these things. You, you'd be dead without me. Right. And, of course, the Santa Claus is kind of used as a mild passive threat, no menace within it whatsoever, but to be good. Because clearly, just like this, yes. I'm always watching. I know what you're doing. So he's also associating – Howard being associated with Santa Claus works because then it implicitly associates Michelle and Emmett with children and his – like his omnipotence over them somehow. So it it oh, works yeah. on so many levels, like you said. It's it, it was a great choice, and I, I was surprised to see this goes so quickly, though, because clearly it seems like Howard doesn't know because he's t referring to Santa Claus. But then right after that, he he's like, "Help me move this out of here," and they're like, "What is this?" And he says, "A barrel," just so literal, <laughs> a barrel. Right. 
Right. It, I, this is kind of where I have a little bit of an issue with the pacing. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, it just I feel it, for me, it just felt like we moved on just way too quick uh, from this uh, from this scene to okay, now we're going to kill Emmett. Um, I feel like there could have been a little bit more time taken. It's not that big of a deal, I don't think. But I do. This is a, one of the smaller issues I have. It's just that this and maybe one or two more points. They just I feel like it just moves on just a little bit too quick. They could have taken a bit more time to set up the next scene. I guess it's just supposed to put you into a false sense of security, just like it cut the tension with Emmett, because he is now in this false sense of security thinking, well, and same with Michelle, that they don't know. Little do they know, the next thing that's going to happen is they are in big trouble. So it, like, kind of, like, secretly cuts the tension, while at the same time, it's, like, it's just a total false sense of security. I, I do see what you mean, though. It does feel like it's a surprising move to go from, like, he has no idea what they're doing to he has an idea and he's about to threaten them with death. But I do think it can be justified in the way that I said. But I also see what you're saying. Right. Well, what, what I'm – I guess what I'm trying to say is not necessarily – I don't have an issue with it moving from the table uh, – the uh, table game scene to uh, – him going to kill Emmett. I don't have a problem with them uh, making that edit. I'm just saying that uh, before we have a chance for the scene that we that just occurred to really sit and simmer a little bit, they kind of just move on. Uh, and next thing we know, he's coming in and say, I need your help moving this barrel. Um, I feel like there could have been a, just a little bit more time taken between there to kind of let the last scene settle a little bit more. And that makes it more uneasier. We just, I feel like editing wise, we just move on just a bit too quick. Yeah, I can definitely see that all right so another great scene but so intense and jaw-dropping is this barrel sequence and it's very interesting because he has them move it into his room which he told them was off limits without his permission uh something i also should note is i love how he said uh like on deck a total Navy term, and he came, comes from yeah. the Navy. So that was really well. I think that was actually improvised by Goodman, that line was. Interesting. And huh. I should note, a lot of the performances, what we are seeing, a lot of this is improv from what the commentary told me. Really? Yes. They shot these scenes in uh, multiple different takes in different ways. Every time it was a little different, but a lot of what you do see is... Uh, them just kind of going off what they feel the characters would naturally do. So incredibly impressive, and it works really well. And a good director, like Trachtenberg clearly gave them direction, but he was also going to let them operate within their character in an organic way, and it really shows. But yeah, uh, back to what I was saying about the barrel scene. It's interesting. They don't do it in the living room. They do it in his room. And I think that's just kind of a power move because they're like, oh my gosh, we're going into dad's office or whatever, the room where we're not supposed right. to be. Clearly, we're in trouble. He's calling them into his center of power, his own personal space. And I got to say, extremely intense, extremely intense. And the when he shoots him, oh my gosh, my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe it the first time I saw it. And uh, my dad, oh my gosh, he jumped up out of his chair. He was so surprised. So it's an effective yeah. scene. Yeah. Oh yeah. This is also a very, very, very well done scene. 
very effective. Yes, that uh, except that exercise of power that he has. You know, we're in my house now. Uh, not only my house, but also now my office. Yeah, like you said, we're going to Dad's office. We're in trouble. Uh, essentially, the kids are being punished at this point. You know, so yeah, the, the very very well done scene. One that is very intense. Uh, it's. There is only one issue I have with this scene, and that is there's a kind of a bad edit or a bad cut in between uh, between angles. There's an angle that's facing towards um, is when they're kind of go all going back and forth. Angle facing towards um, Goodman, and then it cuts to an angle where behind him, and he's it caught it catches him right in the middle of a line, and. Um, the line in the second cut, the, the editing of the sound is not the same as before. And his, his, his voice is echoing in the room is pretty distracting. I, I noticed that second time and then third time is like, all right, that's not a good edit, uh, unfortunately, but easily missed. I will say that it is pretty, it is something that I'm not going to dwell on very much. It's it is there. It is an issue, but I'm. It's not something that I feel is too big of a deal. Oh, getting back to the scene, I do think yes, you are right. This is a very well done scene. This reminds me a lot of Breaking Bad because they utilize this essential, essentially this barrel of acid that you can just put a human in and it dissolves them completely. This happens in episode two of Breaking Bad that we get to see at least for the first time. So yeah, very effective because it, he makes. This is, okay, this is also interesting because when Michelle had to apologize earlier in the movie during the dinner scene, he basically just yelled at her. In this one, he forces Emmett to apologize and he says, I accept your apology, and then immediately shoots him. It makes me wonder if he really wanted Emmett gone from the beginning, um, which I feel is very much what he was wanting to do. He wanted Emmett just out of there. Uh, and especially when we get to later parts of the movie, it... it it's very. It feels like that was what he was going for the whole time. He didn't want Emmett there at all, and the fact that Emmett even had to force himself in and fight him, fight his way into the bunker, even speaks to that even more. So yeah, very very well done scene. Very shocking. It's it's almost it almost feels as if it comes too quick because it's like we're not done with Emmett's character yet. But when I think back on it, yes, we kind of actually were. His character arc was basically finished at this point. But yeah, very very well done scene. Emmett has always been a thorn in Howard's side. And we see that on multiple occasions. The first time, because Emmett knocks the shelf over, Howard just yells at him like, what did you do? Like, just some horrible thing. You think he's, like, beating the snot out of him. And then he later says, Emmett uh, destroyed a week's supply of food, which he's sorry for. And then when Emmett comes into the room and asks, asks Howard if he's watching... He asks him if he's watching 16 Candles... And Howard says, no, I'm watching Pretty in Pink. But right before that, Howard is like, can I help you with something? Like, Emmett is always just a nuisance. Like, even when Emmett's talking at the table, he tells him to shut up. And he, Emmett's a big thorn in his side. He wants to get him out of here. So he was more than glad to eliminate him. And, uh, because really what's he want is him and Michelle to be together. And, uh, I, I was really thrown off when he shaved. Yeah, yeah, this, no, I know we mentioned this earlier, uh, it, this is just a weird, weird, weird scene, because it almost feels like he is trying to get with, with, trying to get with her, 
Um, subtly, of course, but yeah. Weird when he's shaved, changes clothes, he looks a lot nicer. He's wearing bright colors. It, like a, it's like a teal shirt with a white under white undershirt, uh, and then khaki pants. Like, that's so weird. It, it's, it's yeah, I think he combed his hair back, too. It, it's clear he was dressed to impress. It's, it's odd. Well, and you clearly can tell they have taken the time to furnish Michelle's room, which makes it yes. very much like Megan's room now, and... Now the full dynamic is in swing, but we don't get to fully see it because Howard quickly realizes what Michelle's been up to. And he grabs her by the hair, throws her, and from here it is all an all-out thrill ride until a little moment of calm towards the end. But even then, it's not. So I I put in my notes, don't have the words, had to just start watching yeah, and this is kind of where once again that sexual predatorness maybe comes out a bit more. Uh, she uh, she is, tries to escape him. Uh, luckily, she does. But yeah, that scene when she knocks over the barrel of acid. Oh yeah, and he kind of falls onto it, and he comes running after her. That I found almost very terrifying, just because I I didn't know what his intentions were once he caught her. You know, uh, but yeah, very very intense scene. Um, I love how we actually get to see, we get a brief, uh, view of Emmett dissolving oh. in this tub. It's just very brief. And that's one thing I re- actually really enjoy about this movie is that it almost feels as if it was accidentally PG-13. Like it just so happened that that's how it ended up being. And it is, it is not like they were trying to market for a PG-13 movie, but it just ended up being that way which I find to be quite impressive when a movie, I forget that it's a PG-13 movie, which a lot of the time uh, you usually can tell just because of how they're constructed. Well, this is a great sequence from here on out when she just goes into survival mode and she starts sticking up for herself. She kicks the barrel of acid, a great thought. She goes and grabs her gear because she needs that to get to the surface. And... She kicks the shelf over on Howard, which was actually going to be a deleted scene of her and Emmett catching a shelf before it fell over. So she knew that shelf would be easily to knock over onto him. I'm glad they left that out. It uh, Yeah, there's no reason for it to have, with being there. It does work. The one thing that I feel kind of doesn't work a little bit, which took me out, was when we see Howard's uh, close-up face with the uh, burns on it. I could tell... Some of that was CGI, and that took me out of it a little bit. I don't understand why they just didn't use uh, practical makeup. My only thought is, um, I well, no, that doesn't work. There is actually a time where Howard does have a CGI beard. <laughs> really? Yeah, but you wouldn't notice it. It's when Michelle is crawling through the vent the very first time, not this time. The first time to to get the thing started back up, she looks down and Howard says, like, are you doing OK? That brief scene, yeah. uh, he had already shaved and they had to put a CGI beard back on him. But you it's quick and it's unnoticeable. Gotcha. I, yeah, I didn't notice that at all. Yeah, you see it through the vents. So, yeah, there's really no way you could have. I think my only issue. Well, I guess I have a couple issues, small ones once again in this in this scene. One of them has to be uh, with 
Howard, when she knocks over the barrel of acid, Howard, it cuts, it, so it cuts to an overhead shot with the acid just kind of falling on the floor. Howard just kind of falls over. There's really no reason for him to fall over, but he just kind of does. I, I just found that to be a little bit silly. I, there never really was a reason for him to have just kind of slipped or whatever into the acid. But yeah, that's a little bit, uh, I found that to be a little bit cheesy. Unfortunately, Michelle, uh, no, when Mary Elizabeth Winstead, her performance at times doesn't exactly work like when Emmett is shot or then when she goes back in and sees Emmett dissolving. It's like, oh dear, what is that? And then she just moves on. Um, there really isn't much, really isn't much uh, as if there's not really much there um, that she gives. Like, I feel like she should have given a lot more. To that. It showed that it, it impacted her in some kind of a way and instead she kind of just brushes it off. Could be that she's trying to, for at least in this scene, um, she's trying to get away. But in the last scene, we kind of really we move on really quick before we really get a moment to see her really suffer and uh, grieve over Emmett. I do like the foreshadowing of how Howard tells her about the lock with the yes. frozen yes. stuff, and that's what she uses to escape early on. It's really cool that she remembered that he told her that and she planned on using that to get out of there. And um, once she's out of there, it is kind of about twilight sunset. It gets dark pretty fast. I really like how the noises come into play. I, I guess that clues her in that it's okay to breathe. Otherwise wildlife would not be clearly alive and flourishing and i gotta say the shot of her standing on the hood of the truck looking out at the horizon and the alien craft just in the distance coming towards her i think is a phenomenal shot and it's that's great yeah yeah there is also one shot when she just exits the bunker uh and she's on the very left side of the frame and then the uh truck is on the very right side of the frame and you have the sunset in the background and the uh you have the blue to orange gradient and the cornfields all in the middle. It's also a great shot as well. I really, really enjoy it. Just to kind of, it also kind of goes to show that her way to escape is so close yet so far. It, yeah, it, very interesting cinematography here that they implement um, as well. Really, and I wonder if this was shot, this scene alone was shot all in one night. I mean, I doubt it, but it, it makes it feel as if they did because as they cut from one to the next the night just kind of progressively gets darker um obviously showing a passage of time so i, I just wonder if that was uh, that really happened i have once again i highly doubt it but it, it looks like it is i think all shot in one night i think that does complement the editing because the editing in this movie yeah. is very well done right yes i totally agree I totally agree. Okay, Alan. So I want to know, I remember when you first saw this movie, you had a really big issue with this end because of just aliens. Okay, aliens are here now. Has your right. has your view changed? Are you okay with it now? Or are you still kind of in the middle with just, I don't know. I want to know. Yeah. So my view is still very much the same. But it's I'm not nearly as jarred as I was the first time. I did see a lot more of the foreshadowing the second time around. Um, that kind of alluded to the fact that, okay, yeah, maybe there really are aliens. And um, now once we get to this ending, um, it's 
we do see that there, yes, there are in fact aliens and that Howard was probably right. But I can't ignore the fact that this scene is just so aesthetically different from the rest of the movie. And it really takes me out of it. I really don't enjoy this ending. I find it to be really kind of silly because it, at least in this scene, it feels like they were just forcing it to be a part of the Cloverfield uh, saga. It didn't feel like it needed to be here. This movie went on 10 minutes too long with this alien sequence. It doesn't, I don't feel like it ever did much for Michelle's character, except when she makes the decision to go to Houston uh, there at the end, which really we didn't even need this scene before. It it feels so generic for me, this scene, because it's like, okay, well, we need an action scene, I guess, but it doesn't fit with the rest of the movie. Maybe if they had, if they, okay, if they had kept this ending scene as subtle as the rest of the movie, then uh, it would have worked a lot better. Or maybe if they just cut it off, they just cut out the scene entirely and just had her driving down the road and we find out, okay, maybe there actually was an attack and, and stuff like that. I don't feel like we need this this alien attack scene. It doesn't, still just, just doesn't work for me. I feel the exact opposite. When I first saw it in the theater, I had already seen the previous Cloverfield movie, so I knew there had to be something to do with aliens but honestly we're getting we're nearly to the end so i thought oh my gosh could this be a huge twist and a huge twist on us the audience and this will have nothing to do with aliens we won't have anything to do with it well turns out that was not true at all they saved it for about the last 10 minutes of course there is foreshadowing in this movie but it's so subtle and ambiguous that you're very unsure i really enjoyed this final sequences Yes, it is very different from the rest of the movie. It feels really different. I clearly understand what they're trying to say, that they the first movie was about this tiny, small people dealing with a huge monster, and now there's a microcosm of that down in this bunker, and she has to deal with the effects out here. I was kind of confused when I first saw it in the theaters how this fit in with the timeline, of the first movie because I could already tell there was some kind of confusing issues. I assumed that um, this was taking place in a different city right before the Cloverfield monster came and there just so happened to be more aliens coming in that looked totally different. But then you also have to take into the fact that she's using a newer iPhone than the one in 2008. This is eight years later. So clearly this movie does take place in 2016 because of the technology. But these monsters are are totally different than the first one. And I think that does kind of surprise the audience. I gotta say, I knew the aliens were coming, but I completely forgot about the alien dog. What did you think about that? I saw, I don't know about you, but I saw a reference to alien oh, yeah. in this scene when the first mouth opens up and the second one kind of comes out and whatever reminded me, I think it was a homage to alien just with that alone. Uh, yeah, I mean, eh, they're fine. I honestly am really just not a fan of this ending scene. I wish I, for a movie that has spent so much time being so subtle, I just wish that they would have done so much more, so much more with this ending scene personally. 
uh, alien dog, it's fine, I suppose. Well, I do technically, I guess, have a few issues with this end. And the first one is when she takes her mask off and then they gas the place. It just doesn't really add up. And then she takes it off again when she gets in the car and she's driving. She's got to be poisoned somehow. This kind of stuff doesn't just dissipate that fast. Uh, the other thing is when the car is dropped and she is just walks away completely fine. That is 100% unbelievable. I got to say, they did some really incredible job though. Okay, you know the house that she starts running towards for whatever weird reason, like she thinks people are living in it? That didn't make any sense. Well, they, those are the neighbors that we... That she saw in the shed. Or the neighbor, I guess. I just assumed... Yeah, I believe that there's their house. I assumed that was Howard's house, and the woman the per, the woman in the shed was the woman that slammed her head against the bunker. I don't know. It didn't right. make any sense. I guess that is true. That uh, That is true. This is, The bunker was made underneath... Uh, his property. I where, but yeah, it was on the property. I guess you're right. That could be his house. Uh, well, this is That's an incredible silly. blend of CGI and practical effects, though, because that house and the big willow tree next to it are not real at all. Really? Th- that is 100% CGI. I always thought that was a real house and tree. Huh. Interesting. Well, yeah, I thought that was real, too. I didn't know that. Uh, the other thing huh. is when she is in the car being lifted up and dropped and her car crash in the beginning... Again, you can see the sy- symmetry of the storytelling. Um, yes. I I guess, well, that kind of opens up another issue. In the beginning, when she crashes her car, she is still a very dependent person that needs a lot of help. Whereas in the end, when she crashes, she does so because she has taken control of the situation and she is sure what to do when she is leaving so on a symbolic level it works really well on a believable practical level it doesn't but the car crashes were real they took cars put it on hydraulics and shook it around they spun it around really fast for the first one they kind of did a drop with it in the other one so that's real what you're seeing done with the cars i mean of course not from like 30 feet or whatever but yeah it's a really incredible blend of practical and CGI here. Yeah, they do do a pretty good job. The CGI, thankfully, isn't all that bad here. Uh, I mean, you can still tell it's CGI, but it's not distracting, I felt. No. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the fall is completely unbelievable. Um, she has no marks on her whatsoever. The, what I got from the aliens dropping the smoke is that it's essentially... it. It attacks on contact, and since she put the helmet back on, it it was um, basically filtered out all of that. She never got that inside because that was what it was made for. But once again, it is a makeshift hazmat suit, so I really doubt the validity validity of that. Anyways, I feel like there are a lot of just gimmies in this final scene that, for me, really begins to sour the experience because we've just kind of spent so much time grounded in realism. Um, and then this, this kind of comes out of no, of just left field. Um, so yeah, I don't have the same problems or same feelings with this scene as you do. I think it's an incredibly exciting climax. I do love when she turns on the radio, it says they've taken back the Southern seaboard and they're winning. She knows what to do. She turns South to, or, 
I guess it would be west to Austin. Yeah. Can't go south from Louisiana. You go right to the ocean. <laughs> she turns west, and you see the lightning flash, and you see the alien ship. I thought this this yeah. part, at least. I do think when she fights the aliens, it's pretty exciting. But, I, I mean, what do you think? When she turns south, they say she's winning. She pedaled to the metal. You see the aliens flash. I thought that was exhilarating. Yeah, I do enjoy that she makes a decision to not run away from the issue, but to go and fight it. Uh, Once again, I wish the movie was just a little bit more subtle with this ending scene. Uh, This I don't have nearly as much of a problem with as the scene before, as the uh, attack before this, because yes, we find out that hmm, Howard was right. uh, And now Michelle is making a choice to go and help him out, not run away from the issue that is clearly at her doorstep. The, the only problem I guess I have with this is that um, whereas we whereas the issues beforehand were very much relational issues, this one is not the same. It's a very different issue, but I can see where they're going with it. So for that, I for that, I do enjoy it. But for I guess for a character arc, more of a thing, I mm, it's fine. I I'm. It does set it up for a sequel, and that does kind of excite me to see what else they can do uh, in this Cloverfield universe. But at the same time, I don't know. It's it's a bit of an odd. It's a very odd ending for that goes against a lot of what the movie had already previously set up beforehand. Getting to this point is where I'm at. I do feel the same way. I put in my notes. I want a sequel to this one with about fifteen exclamation marks because. I want to continue I want to continue Michelle's storyline, but only if they can do it as well as they did with this movie. I can't yeah. even imagine what that would look like. I I don't know how Michelle will help uh help with the survivors in Austin. I don't know, but it does make me really excited. And honestly, I feel like I guess you could see this as closing like there's no more there's not going to be a continuation of Michelle's storyline, but to me, this seems too exciting not to say to the audience, don't you want to come back and see more? And honestly, that's how I feel, but before I say any more, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for 10 Cloverfield Lane? 10 Cloverfield Lane, for the most part, is a very well-edited, well-shot well-acted, and well-scripted movie. We get a lot of good good themes of not only of relating kidnapping with family. We take the Stockholm syndrome into a very literal sense in this movie. We really get that big, good and really well-rounded relation built relationships between these three characters. And I really, really enjoy it because it never lets you, this movie never allows you to chill it never allows you to sit back and kind of relax it's always keeping you on your toes because it always brings up new new elements to the story that you that are just kind of turn a lot of stuff on its head like like you had previously thought and that's something that i really 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 enjoy about 10 cloverfield lane is that it's it's never afraid to it's it feels like it's never it wasn't afraid of its pg-13 rating and um i'm glad that it I'm glad that I forgot at multiple points that this was rated PG-13 because 
there is a stigma with those kind of movies that uh, you just kind of know when it's PG-13 because they will just conveniently not show things. This one, I feel they show just enough for it to be effective. And there's still a lot of subtlety to it that makes this a psychological horror, I would say. Um, it's unfortunate, in my own opinion, that this ending is the way it is. It goes against a lot of what the movie had previously set up. And that's something that I really wish that they would have changed. And it would have made this movie, for me, much better. Because, yes, this is a Cloverfield movie. But by the same token, it feels like this was a completely different movie. And then at the very last second, J.J. Abrams said, oh, this feels exactly like Cloverfield. Or this feels similar to Cloverfield. And then just decided to tack on this ending uh, with the with Michelle's uh, dominance over the aliens. It just doesn't fit everything that we've come to know. And that's something that I really wish I didn't have to say. And for me personally, I would even say that this shouldn't be a movie related to Cloverfield if they're going to do that. And that is unfortunate that I wish I didn't have to say. I wish this ending would have been something that would have made me, that would have, really hammered in what the movie's really trying to say and not, you know, not just give me a generic action-filled ending like I've seen so many times before because everything else in this movie feels very, quite original. Anyways, with that all being said, I still find everything else in this movie to be very, very engaging, really well done, really well edited, and I'm glad that this movie exists. It For me, it is unfortunate that it has to have the Cloverfield uh, ending to it. So... And it's all said and done. I still had a great time with it. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. Still a solid recommend. Uh, I would, yeah, it's just a lot of fun. Very, one that would keep you on your toes. And I'm glad that it never lets you rest. That's what it needs to do. From the production to the story and to the acting, I feel Tin Cloverfield Lane is nearly a flawless movie. Like I said, here at the end, there was there's just like a couple things that just didn't seem believable. But honestly, those are so minor to me that those don't knock the they don't knock the film out really that much at all. It's maybe just a tiny little pinprick here or there that I can easily overlook. Uh, we've I've already said my thoughts are different than Alan's. It was the same way when we came out of the theater when we first saw it for the first time but honestly guys this movie is in my view this is a perfect movie essentially i can't really find any flaw with cloverfield lane because the casting the acting is so incredible i'm so surprised this movie did not get a couple academy award nominations the editing the cinematography is amazing the score is just incredible the acting and chemistry and of course the story is like alan said really original and i like how it takes something original and still turns it on its head and almost kind of flips genres there at the end and does a really major twist so i'm giving 10 cloverfield lane 10 stars out of 10 This, (laughs) this comes with my highest recommendation i can't praise this movie enough this to me is hitchcock reborn and i want to see more movies like this because i'm a diehard hitchcock fan who loves his work and when i came out of this theater 
I was like, oh my gosh, Hitchcock is back. That's why I took my family to go. They're huge Hitchcock fans as well. That's why we went to go see it again two days later. And I have just fallen more in love with this movie ever since. It is just so incredible. One of the most unique original movies of the 2010s, if not the centuries thus far, anyway. It's a it's That's a some it's big for me. High praise there, bud. Oh yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah, I can't say I feel the exact same way. Uh, I do want to preface what I said earlier. I didn't say it was very. I didn't say it was very unique. I say it was pretty unique. But I I understand what you're saying. Um, yeah, I can't say I feel the same. But hey, to each his own, I suppose. Um, yes, I do really enjoy the Hitchcockian elements. They are prevalent throughout this movie, and there needs to be some because this is a very Hitchcockian uh, story. Um, if they wouldn't have, for me, if they wouldn't have tacked on the ending, maybe this would have. I would have felt more of the same way that you did. But yeah, uh, it's still got some great elements to it. Don't take what I said about the ending to ruin the whole movie, because I don't feel like the ending for me ruins the movie um, completely. It just the last twenty minutes are I just feel are just unnecessary. But I understand where you're coming from. Thank you, listeners, for joining us with uh, the second installment in the Cloverfield Retrospective series. Uh, make sure to stay on the lookout for a lot of more YouTube content. Now that my movie pass has come in, I am able... Yes, it only took 75 days. I guess the Pony Express <laughs> is still in use. You gotta love it when you order yours like a week after mine and you don't get yours for three months <laughs> pretty much it was a very bizarre experience but thankfully after ignoring me for quite a while movie pass decided to listen to me and they got my card out to me and yeah i'm really looking forward to it because i've been wanting to give you guys more youtube content and now i can so i'm excited about that and look for us next time we will be continuing our jurassic park retrospective with jurassic park 3 leading up to the release of jurassic world fallen kingdom and we will also be coming back with halloween 5 the revenge of michael myers leading up to this october's brand new release of the unknown titled halloween film but i gotta say that's probably my most anticipated movie i'm super pumped over it, and of course, just make sure to check the website and other things for more great content. I'm going to let you in on a little sneak peek. I am in the process of watching all of the James Bond movies. I will be writing a guide for you for the James Bond movies. I know Alan has his uh, anime series that he has the first part up right now. The other parts will be coming soon. So just make sure to be on the lookout. Uh... Also, as of this recording, the new Han Solo trailer dropped today. So I got to say, yes. I'm a little more excited for the movie now. Yes, very true. Uh, do we want to kind of talk about the schedule for the rest of the year that we've got it all worked out? Sure, you you can go ahead with some of that since you scheduled it out. Okay, sure. So Corbin and I talked uh, the day before we recorded this, and we kind of worked out the schedule for the rest of the year. So I'm very excited for a lot of these titles. Uh, one of them that we added is Silence from Martin Scorsese. It's a movie that we both really enjoyed and something that I'm really, really excited to talk about because there is a ton to that kind of a movie. So I'm really excited to review Silence. That'll be coming out May 28th uh, 
other than that, we're going to also be doing some more discussions. We have, we'll announce those when they're about to come, well, about to be released. So stay tuned for those. We have in the books, or about to be in the books, the Godfather trilogy is going to be coming out uh, end of, let me pull it up here. End of August. Now that will be a paid subscription. You need to pay to listen to those, but we will cover the entire trilogy. I'm betting it's going to be a pretty long podcast uh, per per movie there, but you'll get your money's worth. Absolutely. So moving on from there, we're going to be reviewing Ghost in the Show, all four movies, uh, and that does include the one with Scar Joe. Other than that, we've got uh, Indiana Jones, the quadrilogy is coming out. We're going to be reviewing that as well. And something personal to me is we're going to be reviewing the Three Mothers trilogy leading up to the uh, remake of a movie called uh, Suspiria. Uh, now, I'll, I'll keep the, my story of Dario Argento a little bit of a secret, but it, he is a director that I've come to really love recently. And I'll explain that when we get to that. So that'll be coming out in about mid-September. There isn't a release date yet for the Suspiria remake, so that'll end up being a bonus podcast for you guys, I'm, I'm betting. Other than that, we are also doing the retrospective for uh, Damien Chazelle, so we'll be doing all four of those movies leading up to the release of First Man, which we're, I'm very excited for, and we are going to be reviewing a lot of Hitchcock in the coming months. We'll begin the retrospective at the end of the year here, and then we'll kind of continue it in the next year and maybe even the year after that, because he has a lot of movies that we have to get through. So that's essentially the schedule that we have worked out for the rest of the year. Um, I'm sure it'll be coming to the website very soon. But yes, that is what we have planned, uh, just to do a little bit of an announcement so that way you guys can know what's happening in the future. Thank you once again, listeners, for joining us on this thrilling adventure, and I look forward to bringing you some more thrilling adventure soon. Make sure to leave your thoughts in the comments below what you thought about 10 Cloverfield Lane, what worked, what didn't work, if the ending worked for you. I know Alan and I had pretty differing opinions upon that, so we want to hear your opinions as well. Make sure to leave that below. Make sure to like this podcast subscribe and share it with your friends because we love movies and we want to spread the love of sharing cinema with everybody. So we want to say thank you once again, and we will catch you next time. Right. Yeah, that's that's a car. Because this reminds me a lot of, like, Room with, oh, what's her name? I am drawing a blank. She won the Oscar for it, too. I'm drawing a blank now, I too. I own this movie. How could I forget? <laughs> oh. Hang on. I got it. Brie Larson. That's it. Oh, yeah. Brie Larson.